So when Silicon Valley failed, they were the 16th largest bank in the country, and it's the second largest bank failure ever, the largest since 2008. They had more than $100 billion, I believe, in deposits that were uninsured. 95% of their deposits were uninsured. That's Kia Hazlitt, the managing editor of the publication Bank Director. Later, we'll hear more from her about what the Silicon Valley bank failure means for global markets. I'm Teresa Carey. And this is the top line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. Today is Friday, March 17th. And if you're like us, your head is still spinning with all this SVB stuff. What does it all even mean? Well, stick with us. We've got two great segments coming up that will help clear things up. But first, here's Krita Anderson to start us off with this week's biopharma and medtech industry news. Last year, Pfizer became the first ever biopharma company to ring up sales of $100 billion. What's a company to do with all that cash? Well, as Kevin Dunleavy reports, Pfizer had the answer on Monday. It announced in a press release that it would pay $43 billion to acquire CGen. It's the industry's largest deal since 2019, when AbbVie bought Allegan for $63 billion. With the CGen deal, Pfizer gains four approved cancer drugs and a huge pipeline that includes 33 products in development. CGen specializes in a drug class called antibody drug conjugates, or ADCs. While cancer treatments effectively kill cancer cells, many also harm healthy cells. But ADCs are designed to act more selectively, killing cancer cells and limiting damage to healthy ones. Last year, Merck, in fact, coded CGen. But the companies couldn't agree on a price, and so the deal fell through. This time, the little extra Pfizer could afford seems to have made the difference. And Pfizer has been on a spending spree since COVID cash began flowing in. In 2021, Pfizer bought cancer specialist Arena for $6.7 billion and Trillium for $2.3 billion. Last year, Pfizer's biggest acquisitions were an $11.6 billion deal for migraine specialist Biohaven and $5.4 billion for sickle cell innovator Global Blood Therapeutics. And in other news on antibody drug conjugates, Sinefix and Macrogenics have expanded their ADC collaboration. Just over a year ago, the two companies announced a plan to work together on three ADC programs. It is a collaboration worth $586 million. Now, as Max Bayer reports, that deal will be worth up to $2.2 billion and will include up to four more programs. Interest in the ADC drug class has seen a resurgence lately. Take a look at Pfizer's $43 billion deal to buy CGen, which I just told you about. The interest in ADCs comes from their ability to bypass healthy cells and target only cancerous cells. In doing so, these drugs can limit toxicities. Sinefix's vice president of business development said in a press release that 13 companies have disclosed a total of 20 candidates developed with Sinefix's ADC technology. 
Senator Bernie Sanders has long been an adversary of Big Pharma, particularly when it comes to insulin prices. Well, now he is finally winning some battles, and insulin is beginning to get more affordable for some. Sanders has been at it for a long time. In 2019, Sanders led a caravan of type 1 diabetes patients across the border to Canada. It was an effective stunt, showing that insulin was available for one-tenth the price in Canada. Last year, the Inflation Reduction Act capped insulin at $35 per month for Medicare patients. And now, as Kevin Dunleavy reports, Novo Nordisk has joined Eli Lilly slashing prices on some of their insulin products. Two weeks ago, Lilly dropped its prices by 70%. Sanders applauded the move and implored other insulin producers to follow suit. On Tuesday, Novo Nordisk did just that. Novo cut the list price on one of its products by 75% and two other products by 65%. While people with insurance coverage do not pay the list price on drugs, those who are uninsured do. The changes will kick in on January 1, 2024. Coming up next, we'll dive into our coverage of Silicon Valley Bank. But first, we have to talk about March Madness. Well, it's time for some fierce madness. Last year, right before I took this job, Fierce channeled the NCAA tournament looking for the best drug names. I came in having to learn new language, Voxogo, Tavanos, and some other wild names. But thankfully, this year, we're looking for the best TV ads for pharma drugs. The first bracket will have 32 contenders. It will be announced on the 20th, and that's when you can start voting. And now I get to boast a little. Both the ASBE and the Neal Awards are among the most competitive there are for business-to-business publications, like Fierce. And we've got a few nominations. Fierce Biotech is a finalist in the regional and national awards for best overall headline writing. That's where our journalists get to get creative, catchy, and sometimes even a little silly. And for the Neal Awards, Angus Liu from Fierce Pharma is nominated for the best scientific or technical content for his story on Project Frontrunner. Angus covers our cancer beat. His article is in our show notes. And our sister podcast, produced by our Fierce Healthcare team, is a finalist in the Neal Awards for Best Podcast. That show is called Podnosis, spelled just like it sounds, and we're the only one with that name. So check it out. Podnosis. Podnosis. The sudden failure of Silicon Valley Bank sent shockwaves across the biotech industry. SVB served almost half of all venture-backed technology and life sciences companies. That means that many of the biotechs that you hear us talk about on the top line were at risk of losing their deposits. Fierce Biotech Senior Editor Annalie Armstrong talked with Kia Hazlitt, the managing editor of the publication Bank Director. They talked about how SVB's failure could impact the industry. Here they are. Hi, Kia. Hi, Annalie. So just 
for our readers, listeners, when this uh, story broke, I texted Kia, one of one of the first things I did. And she said to me, banking reporting comes for all of us eventually. So here we are. I do just want to note that we're recording this on Monday. This situation is evolving really fast, but we wanted to learn more about how we got here. So let's kind of rewind back to last week. SVB released earnings where they revealed that they were going to do a capital raise of more than $2 billion. Biotechs do that kind of thing all the time. Maybe not for that much money, but why was it so worrisome when a bank did it? Yeah. So last Wednesday, Silicon Valley Bank actually released um, a announcement that included the capital raise and an additional um, balance sheet restructuring. The bank at this point only has a 50% loan to deposit. So they um, they've got a bunch of deposits and half as many loans as those deposits. So, and then um, because they're not making a lot of money from from loans, they uh, ended up taking a lot of those deposits and buying bonds with them. But they did this uh, not in 2022. They did it in 2020 and 2021 when interest rates were at historic lows, zero percent. Since then, they've risen 400 basis points or four percent. And so now Silicon Valley Bank realizes that they're not making enough money um, from that those bonds. They're not making enough money from their loans. And they need to do a couple of things to make big changes. What they decide to do is they're going to sell these bonds that are not paying very much. But what happens when interest rates go up is that bond yields go down. So they've got these f- three to five year, five to 10 year bonds that are going to only pay 1.8% for the next 40 months. And they need to sell them. And those bonds are not worth very much. They're going to sell $21 billion in bonds, and they're going to take a $1.8 billion loss. When you take a loss that big, it eats into your capital. So then you need to have a capital raise. There's also reporting that indicates that a bank regulator may have told Silicon Valley to raise capital. So Silicon Valley announces these two actions at the same time. And the stock begins its free fall. And when you're trying to raise capital, having an extremely volatile and declining share price doesn't work. And then separately, um, you know, Silicon Valley has a lot of depositors that are companies, as, as you mentioned. Um, companies tend to have large operating accounts. I think I read Silicon Valley's, the average balance was three to $5 million in their bank account. Well, most of that money is uninsured. Um, Annalie, you and I probably don't have more than $250,000 in our personal bank accounts, which means our money's fully insured if our bank runs into problems. But your um, readers, your, those customers, their money was not insured. And so many of these customers on Thursday and Friday, begin withdrawing their full amounts or up, you know as much as they can out of the bank because they are worried that the bank um, is in financial trouble. Well, in banking, when a lot of deposits leave, we call that a run. And maybe you're familiar with what a run looks like from um, It's a Wonderful Life. But in this day and age, it's just really is like some bank transfers, some wiring, and then the money just leaves. And at a certain point, Silicon Valley cannot cash everyone out. So on Friday morning, um, the FDIC decides to close the bank and kind of begins a real amount of uncertainty as companies try to figure out what's going to happen to their uninsured deposits that are locked in this bank that's now closed. Mm-hmm. So we actually saw pictures of like people knocking on the door of this bank, trying to literally get in there and get their money, which was a pretty surreal scene. I think the final tally came out 
over the weekend or this morning, it was something like $42 billion that people were trying to pull out. Is, is that what you saw as well? Yeah. So when Silicon Valley failed, um, they were the 16th largest bank in the country. And it's the second largest bank failure ever, the largest since 2008. Um, 95% of their deposits were uninsured. They had more than $100 billion, um, I believe, in deposits that were uninsured. And you know, in banks, one of the most important things banks can do is keep giving customers access to their money. And so when customers worry that they won't have access to their money, they're going to try to enter the bank physically, which is why the regulators closed it Friday morning. Um, and then also, you know, we've got a lot of computers that can move money around these days. And so I think you saw that contribute um, to the speed of the decline. Yeah. So the regulators stepped in, they shut the bank down. What does that mean exactly? What's What kind of happened over the weekend? Because they promised that on Monday morning that funds would be available, people would be able to withdraw their money. Yeah. So um, it's very interesting what happened between Friday and Sunday. On Friday, um, the FDIC takes receivership of the bank from its primary regulator, which is the California Department of Financial Institutions. What that does is uh, basically stops and pauses the deposit run. And now it is the FDIC's problem to figure out um, who is going to acquire the assets of the bank, which are the loans and those securities we talked about. And then um, they will take the sale, the proceeds of those sales, and use it to cash out depositors. And the reason why I think uh, maybe this is such an unfamiliar territory for many people is that most failed banks fail with a buyer. So the bank would, in a perfect world where this doesn't move as quickly, we don't have this deposit run, maybe we just have some like loan issues, the FDIC would have secretly shopped the bank's assets and deposits around and then announced the closure. And then those depositors just become the next bank's customers. We don't have that here. We just have a closed bank, can't access your money. And so for your um, readers who are maybe like um, startups, they're worried that you know maybe they didn't have money at Silicon Valley Bank, but they've got money that's similarly situated at another bank? And is their money safe? And is their bank safe, right? And so that that is an open question until Sunday. And what we have on Sunday is we have some notice from regulators about what they intend to do. So the first thing was that another bank actually did end up having a deposit run as well. Signature Bank in New York, um, $110 billion. Signature Bank is also a very much business-focused bank, lots of uninsured deposits. I read like 80% of their deposits were uninsured. So that bank goes to the receivership, same as Silicon Valley fails without a buyer. And then the um, regulators announced that the uninsured depositors at both of these institutions will be made whole. And those they'll just be cashed out. And they'll actually be able to just wire their money out. And so hopefully that has stopped some of the panic and then because there is now a contagion risk across the industry, right, um, regulators have announced a funding and lending facility that banks can access to to kind of bring in more funds to the bank in case people are pulling their money out. So these lending facilities and these funding facilities help the banks cash out depositors who do want to leave without the potential deposit run um, continuing. Mm -hmm. You mentioned um, kind of the fears at other banks. I know that um, one company told us that they were advising uh, their companies that they work with to transfer their funds to First Republic. Yeah. This morning, First Republic, their shares are down something like, was it 60, 80 percent, something crazy? Yes, I so saw that. What is going on there? 
now in this situation, given that we've had Silicon Valley and Signature fail, I, I'm under the impression depositors are looking around and saying, okay, what bank looks like these two banks that just failed? Maybe they're not looking at the balance sheet. Maybe they're not looking at the bonds that SVB had. Um, they're just looking like, who banks a lot of um, companies that might have uninsured deposits? And who doesn't have a lot of retail deposits that are going to not leave the bank because they're insured? And so First Republic is a bank that actively competed with SVB and Signature for many of these same customers um, and now is in the position where it has to defend itself as being different enough on its balance sheet that um, that your money's safe at, at First Republic. Now, I did see that First Republic did announce that they have a, a lending line with JP Morgan, right? So First Republic is saying, basically, if you choose to pull your money out of us, hopefully they can replace that money without a funding crunch and, and another um, liquidity failure. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, what I wonder is like your, um, you know, your reader who said, put your money in First Republic. Well, is that reader pulling their money out of First Republic and putting it somewhere else? Because where is this money going? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, from the banking side, I kind of suspect it's going to the biggest four banks in the country that are seen as too big to fail and would receive like probably extraordinary measures. Now, again, I'm hoping that um, the bank regulators, their actions are enough to kind of stymie and stop this movement of money because I just don't think anything good comes out of this. You know, we call it hot money, but money just move sloshing around the industry and banks not being able to to figure out how much money is going to leave their account because people are scared. All right. So this all happened so quickly. Like, like I said, on Friday morning, I did not wake up expecting to have to learn the ins and outs of the US banking system. So is this typical of a bank collapse? Have you ever seen anything like this happen? Money is moving faster than ever. Um, think about Zelle, like you and me can probably send each other Couple hundred bucks with like in a in less than a minute. Um, that did not exist in the last time we had um, a banking crisis, and so uh, that's why we saw Silicon Valley fail so fast. Is that they were not able to raise capital fast enough? Then the money left the bank, and billions left the bank in like you know thirty hours. Um, and and so I think that that's going to be a real problem. For banks, they need to just as they figure out how, like how likely it is that this could happen at their bank, they probably have to increase the rate that deposits can leave because it's just it's just faster than it's been in ten years. You know, as we've been covering this story, it's changing by the minute sometimes. So, what do you think is going to happen in the days to come? Like, should people be worried about a really big, you know, financial crisis coming from all of this? Um, I. I can't. I what I learned over the weekend at refreshing Twitter is that venture capitalists are probably a flightier bunch, uh, and they are more scared of losing their money than I maybe appreciated in the past, given all the risks that they they take on the investing side. You know, I think that what we learned in the financial crisis and what we kind of saw in the coronavirus crisis, like, isn't it crazy that we didn't have this in the coronavirus? Uh, in the earliest days of the shutdown. And it's because we saw regulators go out really, really big, really fast and just say, here's a bunch of money. Um, And if so, if you have a deposit run, you can backstop it. If you have some asset quality issues associated with um, a national shutdown, we'll go ahead and suspend some of the payments that you need to make on that until everything settles. And so I'm hoping that uh, that's an 
those facilities are enough to just interrupt the run. Now, whether or not the run continues um, is a different question than how can banks manage their balance sheets enough so that they don't have to take the steps that Silicon Valley Bank did, or if they do have to take them, can they do it in a way that doesn't send everyone into a panic? And those are actually the questions I'm really interested in because these are, you know, every, all of these decisions were made two or three years ago. um, And now we're just kind of seeing in banking what's going to happen. So, yeah, I mean, when this first, when this news first broke on Friday, it seemed really intense. And we were hearing all these companies were going to be impacted, there were going to be major losses. But it seems like now that that initial kind of, I don't know, fog of war is is over, it it maybe seems like these companies, first of all, are their deposits are going to be backed up by the government. Yeah, as we learned. Yeah. So it seems like I think it's not going to be a huge issue. Like you said, maybe they're going to be a little bit more careful about who they bank with. Yeah. And it'll be interesting, at least in the banking industry, which institutions end up picking up this business. Um, I know that Silicon Valley is extremely specialized. And so um, I hope hopefully your readers um, can get serviced by other institutions that are interested in, in kind of working with that type of early stage company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Kia, thank you. This has been so fun to combine our interests <laughs> and do a podcast together. Um, you know, I this is a pretty extraordinary situation. Um, I hope our paths cross uh, at work again. This is quite the reunion. We, Annalie and I used to work together on different desks at, an, at our former employer. It only took the second largest bank failure in the United States to, to bring us together. If this banking crisis expands, um, you know, it, it might touch more industries than just the healthcare and, and startup industries. Yeah, we'll have you back if there's any more. Thanks for having me. That was Kia Hazlitt and Annalie Armstrong. So we're going to hear from Annalie again with my colleague Max Bayer as they dig into more of their coverage of SVB this week. But first, let's get back to Karita Anderson with the rest of this week's headlines. Eli Lilly gave us a blast from the past last week. It served up fresh data from an Alzheimer's drug that had all but disappeared from our radar. Solanezumab is an antibody that Lilly had tested a decade ago in patients with advanced or mild forms of Alzheimer's but the drug failed both trials. It wasn't quite over for solanezumab, however. In 2013, Lilly began another study. This time, it was testing the drug in people who had amyloid plaques accumulating in their brain, but didn't show symptoms of Alzheimer's. As Nick Taylor reports, those results are now in, and the findings are still not great. Solanezumab was not able to slow the cognitive decline that comes with Alzheimer's. It's not the end of the road for Lily's Alzheimer's ambitions, though. The company has long since moved on to new therapies. One of these is Donanenumab. Eli Lilly is expected to release data from a phase 3 trial by June. The FDA recently decided not to give that drug an accelerated approval. And even if the trial is a triumph, it will still leave Lilly playing catch-up, trailing Biogen and Esai's own Alzheimer's drug, which secured FDA approval in January. 
Right on schedule, Perkin Elmer has sold three of its businesses, a move it announced last August. As Andrea Park reports, New Mountain Capital, a private equity firm, offered up $2.5 billion to buy three of Perkin Elmer's businesses. Those are the applied science, food, and enterprise services segments. New Mountain Capital will keep the Perkin Elmer name and plans to eventually sell the divisions to another buyer. What remains are the life sciences and diagnostics segments. Those divisions formed a new standalone company, but its name and branding have yet to be revealed. So for now, it's still operating as Perkin Elmer. That newly created medtech company is made up of businesses that brought in more than $3.3 billion in revenue last year. That's compared to just under $1.3 billion in revenues from the divested divisions. Perkin Elmer said in its divestment plans that it expects the life sciences and diagnostics focused company to grow by 10% every year now that the split is complete. By the end of last Thursday, it was evident that fear had seeped into Silicon Valley Bank and the investors that relied on it. But nothing could have prepared anyone for the landslide that was Friday morning. Silicon Valley Bank was one of the biotech industry's top financiers. When it crumbled Friday morning, it was the largest bank failure since the 2008 financial crisis. Fierce biotech staff writers Annalie Armstrong and Max Bayer sat down to discuss what the bank failure means for global markets. Here they are. So the past few days in the newsroom have been a whirlwind. On Friday morning, we all arrived virtually at our desktops expecting to have a normal day in biotech. But Silicon Valley Bank had a different idea for us. Uh, the bank failed, and that kind of set off a lot of panic across the industry, not just in biotech, in the startup world. We immediately pivoted and started covering this story about what the impact was going to be for the companies that we cover. I'm joined by Max Baer, and we're going to talk about how our day, past couple days have gone. <laughs> just trying to figure out how you even start just to give a little bit of context background, this major banks failed. They were um, one of the, you know, the number one bank for startups and biotech. So obviously, a lot of our companies were scrambling. We got on the phone to a lot of companies and venture capital firms to find out exactly what was happening. Um, Max, I think you were the one hitting the phones the hardest. So do you want to just kind of give an overview of what you heard? Sure. I mean, you know, I think we woke up on Friday and and you, you know, had sort of suggested that we divide and conquer some of the top VCs. Our financing tracker came in handy uh, because we list out the investors there. So it was very easy to sort of see who uh, who's constantly on the list. And that sort of populated the, the VCs that we were calling to try and ask for comment. Uh, received a lot of no comments, majority no comments or, or, or no responses from folks. Um, but we're ultimately able to reach a few sources who described um, a very unsettling 24 hours, essentially, in which their confidence in a mainstay of Silicon Valley and biotech financing, essentially, um, that confidence had crumbled. It was just sort of wild to see all of this unfold in a matter of hours. Yeah. And, you know, the the no comments that we got back were very indicative of the situation. Nobody wanted to be the one to say, 
that there was a bank run happening, that any of their actions could contribute to that. You know, companies were panicking and trying to get their money out. What ended up happening throughout the morning is that the FDIC stepped in, they shut down the bank, and then we kind of had to wait through the weekend to see what happened. Um, They eventually ended up promising all of these um, depositors that the money would be there on Monday morning. Um, And, you know, Monday, the bank opened (laughs) under FDIC control. And just through this week, we've been kind of hearing about companies having a little bit of trouble uh, getting their deposits out. But I don't know, are we are we kind of back to normal? Where do you think we are now? To be clear, you know, like normalcy in biotech, I've gleaned is an incredibly relative statement. Anyway, like before this happened, like I would not describe biotech as being in a normal place before the SVB run happened. And so now it's just like, if you've seen Stranger Things, like this is like the upside down world in a way. People are trying to sort of climb back to a reality of sorts. Like I think biotech between the layoffs and private financing um, uh, hindrances that have maybe sort of defined the beginning part of the year and also layoffs in, in, in large pharma. There's been, you know, appetite for M&A that's only just now being, you know, coming to fruition. And then SVB, it's like, it's like no one has felt like anything has been going par for the course. And SVB, it was the last layer of what has been like a tumultuous two years, really. Yeah. And that was the sentiment we heard from a lot of people is just like, biotech did not need this. Um, I think now, you know, we're, we're almost a week out from this event. Right. We're now starting to see that maybe the reaction on Friday was a little overblown. You know, Mm -hmm. these companies, you know, the government did step in and give, and they are going to get their deposits. So they're going to be made whole for any money that they had in these banks. It's been interesting for me because we are not banking reporters. Like we're biotech reporters. We cover the industry. We cover drug development. And so to be thrusted into this, I've learned a lot what this has meant, partially why there was so much fear because the $250,000 cap on the insurance, on the insured deposits, like that was the the, the vast minority of the, of, of the money because you had businesses pouring in millions of dollars to the bank. So it's been really interesting to sort of see people compare and contrast it with 2008. And you and I were, t- you know, we, we, we noticed that once the... Uh, the federal government sort of backed up all deposits, you know, the uh, the whole point, there's been a phrase that has come up like contagion, right? Which is the whole concept of like, what happens to SVB is going to spread fear to the rest of the financial sector. And so that was sort of driving a lot of the government's decision making over the weekend. And yet we still saw First Republic Bank, I believe their trading was halted on Monday. You know, we're seeing today issues with credit suite. So it's like, it's like we are, we've left SVB behind in a way, but the ramifications were only still just now sort of gleaning what that could be, both for the biotech industry, but also the larger financial sector. Yeah. And everybody on Twitter had a take on this. Like one thing that was interesting is you saw people put out something that was like, oh, you know, this is going to be fine. There's not going to be a big issue. And then literally an hour later, they're like, uh, never mind, changing my opinion on that. So you got to see mm-hmm. people like backtrack in real time. But but I, at least at least speaking personally, I couldn't find any VC who would tell me on the record, oh yeah, we're telling our companies to hold their money. You know, like, so yeah. so then you have to sort of shrug and be like, all right, well, who is saying to keep their money in, you know, and you can't necessarily blame people for saying pull, given what what the information was as of Thursday. Bringing it back to biotech, um, I think my takeaway standing at it's Wednesday today, this is 
four business days out. I think that this was a shock, but hopefully this isn't going to have a long-term impact on biotech. Uh, Maybe the takeaway for companies is that they're going to be a little bit more diversified in where they Mm -hmm. bank. Um, But it seemed like that was the case anyways, that a lot of companies had, you know, they they did their banking across a a bunch of different institutions. Here's what I'm curious about, because like, you know, people have often touted healthcare is sort of quote unquote recession proof. Do you think that this ultimately could sort of stifle innovation through a, a, a lack of funding? Like, do you think that there's actually going to be sort of pipeline ramifications here? I think this is going to be a bit of a momentary halt in the industry. Everybody's kind of taking stock. But, you know, I've, I've already been talking to uh, venture capital firms and, and companies that are saying, you know, we're, we're, we're still confident in where the market is going, which you know, isn't that great? We're still missing IPOs that would show health in the, mm-hmm. in the markets. You know, we are seeing more um, early stage financings, which is wonderful. But there, yeah, the, you know, the market isn't great for biotech. This doesn't help, but I think we're going to keep going towards what should hopefully be a recovery, you know, in the next 12 months. It's hard to quantify morale. People are going to always be trying to think about medicines and whatnot. The real question for like the biotech industry is like, does all of this drama, SVB, the layoffs, funding issues, uh, you know, the interactions with policy, like the whole nine yards, like, does that impact professors who want to launch biotech companies? Because that's ultimately what this all comes down to in terms of innovation, I would say, Um, you know, and I don't necessarily see that. Well, we hear this all the time. Good yes. ideas always get funded. So that is true. That is true. I, even with the tough markets, I think that's that's going to continue. So, I'm proud of the work that we did, and, and we'll continue to cover the twists and turns of this fallout and the impact on the industry. Uh, I think maybe let's just hope we don't get too dizzy. Thanks. That's it for the top line. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodson. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. And don't forget to vote in our March Madness competition. And that's the bottom line from the top line.